The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 185 of the Sample Chapter Podcast. I am your host, Jason A. Meiske, and man, we've got a great episode for you today. My guest is writer, speaker, and teacher, Catherine Ashenberg. And I'm going to say right now, you are in for a hypnotic reading after the interview. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a great interview. We talk about all sorts of things like how having different jobs has led to informing your stories, uh, taking the train for inspiration and problem solving, discovering the similarities between ourselves and the characters that we write, and sometimes the differences. Uh, we talk about her other books and that include fascinating topics like cleanliness and the process of mourning after death, uh, and so much more. So many great aspects of this conversation that we have. It all leads into a truly hypnotic reading that Catherine does whenever she goes into her novel, Her Turn, uh, which in itself is a wonderful sounding book from HarperCollins and uh, one that you are going to really, really enjoy. That's coming up here in just a few minutes, so stay tuned for that. Meanwhile, I am back into, uh, I am back from a little vacation, a little rested. Uh, It's nice. I've got today, I'm doing a few interviews. I'm doing some writing in between and a little bit of yard work uh, between that. So kind of mixing mixing up my day, which is nice. Um, Got some upcoming uh, doctor appointments to find out what's going on with my knee and why is it still giving me problems after surgery last year? But, you know, it's it's not, the vacation was good. It was restful, um, much needed. And uh, what's what else is good is I've been getting some good writing in here lately. And uh, even this morning, I was getting in some pretty good writing. <laughs> Had one of those moments where a new idea for a different story, a short story, mind you. Something completely different came to me and you know it's all I can do to just stay focused on what I'm doing as opposed to writing down and beginning on this other story idea I ended up I had to stop make some notes so that I wouldn't forget this idea because I think it would work as a short story that maybe I can submit to an anthology or something like that but yeah I'm I'm putting that aside for now because I really want to get book one of the bandit series out Um, I'm aiming I'm aiming for October is what I'm looking for right now. Um, but I've got a lot of work to do between now and then. I've already edited it once, edited the book once, and I'm going through it a... Uh, actually, I've edited it twice. And I'm going through it a third time now, adding some more information and kind of punching up some of the details, making sure that my plot lines throughout work and that I'm leaving some uh, some little you know strings to pull in the upcoming books of the series. I don't know. I Anybody who's been following the show for a while knows that I was hoping to do the first three books in this series. We'll see. I That's a lot of work. And uh, as you know, again, as anyone who's been following knows, I got uh, two-thirds of the way through what I thought was book two before realizing it was half book two, half book three. So I've had to split that up, and <laughs> that kind of threw me off 
So I've kind of I've avoided book two and three for now. I did go in, flesh out a little bit of what they're supposed to be so that that doesn't happen again. And then uh, I went back to book one because at the very least, I want book one out this year and we'll see how it goes from there. And uh, I don't know if I can get the book prepared and then while the uh, book cover is being uh, ready, we'll just kind of see what the time looks like on whether or not I'm able to get the next in the series ready before the end of the year. It'd be nice. It'd be really nice. And uh, of course, if I can pull it off, whether I pull it off or not, you, the listener, will be the first to know. All right. Well, my writing aside, let's thank our sponsor, Scrivener Writing Software. They're my favorite writing software. I say this every time, but it's a fact. I love writing on Scrivener, and I have a coupon code for you in this upcoming advertisement that's going to save you 20% on the regular desktop version. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scrivener. Now, I know you've heard about Scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scrivener every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener Writing Software, built by writers for writers. All right, so that was Scrivener with their wonderful deal. And if you like deals, check this one out from Audible. Hello, friends. Jason here. And I wanted to take a moment to tell you about a great offer from Audible. Like you, I'm very busy. I have a full-time job, a family, I'm a thriller author, and I do this weekly podcast. But I also love to read. That's where Audible is a lifesaver for me. Whether I'm mowing the yard, working out, driving back and forth to work, or doing some other menial task, I can still listen to an incredible book through Audible. And now you can get a free 30-day trial by going to audibletrial.com slash samplechapter. By doing that, you'll not only have that 30-day trial, you'll also gain access to guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, A-list comedy, exclusive Audible originals, and even podcasts like the Sample Chapter Podcast. Last year is the first time I ever achieved my own personal reading goals, and it was because of some wonderful titles I listened to on Audible. Some of those titles were Ready Player Two by Ernest Cline, narrated by Will Wheaton, the Awaken Online series from Travis Bagwell, narrated by David Stifel. Patient Zero by Jonathan Mayberry, narrated by the incredible Ray Porter. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention previous guest Scott Meyer with his Magic 2.0 series, narrated by Luke Daniels. It's a lot of fun and definitely worth your time. Hey, full disclosure, by signing up at audibletrial.com samplechapter, the show does get a little monetization, which goes directly towards any production needs uh, with the show. So you're also helping us out here by signing up. So what are you waiting for? Head on over now to audibletrial.com samplechapter and start your free 30-day trial today. Okay, going from our sponsors and partners, I want to move in next to our podcast friends, starting with Pop Goes the Culture Network. 
They have a half dozen shows at their network, all of them pop culture related, uh, whether it's news or reviews. In fact, I can just name them all off for you right now. There is the Pop Goes, <laughs> there is the Pop Goes the Culture podcast, The Backlot by Alamo Drafthouse podcast, Fellowship of the Geeks podcast, The Two Dads Review podcast, The Multiverse Tonight podcast, and of course, yours truly, The Sample Chapter podcast. Now, one of those is not like the other. <laughs> in that every one of those shows are all pop culture related with the exception of one except you do get some really you know we do get some really cool pop culture uh authors on so anyway i invite you to go check out the website at popgoesaculture.com the link is in the show notes and check out any one of those shows they're all fantastic likewise i want to invite you also to check out my other podcast network friend project entertainment network Home to about 30 different shows of an extremely wide variety. Shows like Your New Opinion, Gutting the Sacred Cow. The list goes on and on and on. So many varieties to choose from. Here's an example of one of those incredible shows. How do people who make stuff up for a living make stuff up? New York Times bestseller Jonathan Mayberry told us... Oprah's book club favorite Sue Miller told us... You know, you sort of take a character and make some bad things happen. How do we get them to do that? We colored them, just like at a cocktail party, except through your headphones. Join us every Thursday for the Liars Club Oddcast. A slightly unhinged podcast where storytellers interview other storytellers. Available on Project Entertainment Network, iTunes, and everywhere podcasts are heard. Okay, well, there you go. Another one of those crazy shows from over at Project Entertainment Network. Hey, all of our podcast friends, our partner, and, of course, our sponsor, they're all available on social media networks. Find us all over at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Of course, the Sample Chapter Podcast is just look us up by name, Sample Chapter Podcast, on any of those platforms, and you will find us. So like and follow us, whatever you want to do. This show is available on all podcast platforms, including Audible, which you heard earlier, and on YouTube, which is a fantastic place to go and check out the show. Of course, you, each week's guest author, the book cover is available right there in the uh, on the YouTube screen or and on some of these podcast players. They've started showing show artwork for each individual episode, which is a really cool thing. I'm glad I was ahead of the curve on doing that so every one of those episodes are available in there uh anyway back to social media if you are not a social media person but you would like to contact the show you can do so at samplechapterpodcast at gmail.com if you would like to leave me a voicemail please do by calling 1-660-851-1146 and as always make it a good one make it a fun one tell me something that you like tell me a little story whatever you like and then listen for an upcoming episode, and you could hear your voice on that episode. All right, well, with all that out of the way, I think it's time to hop on over to our wonderful conversation with our guest, Catherine Ashenberg, and we're going to hear all about her book, Her Turn. Hello, Sample Chapter listeners. Welcome once again to another exciting episode. Today, we have writer, speaker, and teacher Catherine Ashenberg with us. Uh, Catherine is a prize-winning author of two novels, four nonfiction books, and hundreds of subjects, ranging from travel to morning customs to architecture. She is a self-described 
lapsed Dickinson and joins us today to discuss her upcoming novel, Her Turn. Catherine Ashenberg, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, now uh, I understand you just came back from vacation. How did that go for you? Uh, it was great, as a matter of fact, staying with a younger daughter, her three children, and husband. And um, we had good weather, not this punishing heat wave that they'd had uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia, where I was a couple weeks before. So got a chance to see old friends, eat in restaurants, which we haven't been able to do in Toronto. We, we, our restaurants have just, just opened. So it seemed like another, another civilization there. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. It's been nice to get to go back to restaurants and, and, you sit kind of spaced away a little bit, but uh, to enjoy having somebody bring the food to your table as opposed to taking it home has been a oh, nice change. Yeah. So nice. <laughs> now, one of the uh, one of the titles you have in your uh, description that that uh, struck me was "Lapsed Dickensian." How how do you describe that? What is this? <laughs> well, that just means that um, long ago in the in the past century, when I was starting my um, career, I, I seem to have a, an attention span of about 10 years for a whole bunch of careers. And then somehow without me thinking about it, it moves into the next one. But my first one was getting a PhD in Charles Dickens, the Victorian novelist. And I really thought I would spend the rest of my life reading and rereading and teaching Dickens. Um, and I was very happy about that. But fate decided otherwise. And I went on to become a radio producer and then a newspaper editor. And then for the last number of years, a, a full-time writer. So yes, I'm a lapsed Dickensian, but I still, I still love him. And I actually started to reread one of his novels at Christmas time, where I'm still on page 227, but I will finish it. <laughs> uh, well, you know, and I, I really like that. I, that's actually I, I, something I have in common with you is Part of it is because of uh, just, just happenstance. Um, I had been in the military, then I got out of the military medically after a couple of years. And then a few years later, my wife joined the military. And so prior to that, I was always looking for the job that I wanted. And I changed about every 18 months looking for the next one, uh, getting a little bit of a raise and a little bit of a better job. And then when she joined the military, then it became a, I got to get a new job because of location. We moved from place to place every few years and so um, until she retired 10 years ago I haven't had a job longer than four years was the longest I had a job yeah. and and now I've got one that I've been working at for almost 10 years now and but you know I, I find that the different jobs has helped inform my writing do you find that to be the same for sure yeah and it meant that I had almost no research to do for her turn because it's set in a big city newspaper where I had worked for 10 years. Um, so it was a piece of cake in terms of knowing that world and being able to write about that world. And newspapers are filled with, you know, obsessed, eccentric, speedy people. So it's a very funny place to work. And most novels that are about newspapers are comic novels. And I can see why having... Uh, written a newspaper novel myself now. Okay. Well, that's it. That's fascinating. And the book you mentioned there, that's Her Turn. That's the upcoming novel coming out August 3rd. 
It's a delightful novel in the vein of Younger and Unbreakables with a hint of Nora Ephron uh, lit with a charm all its own. And it sounds wonderful and uh, one that I can't wait to kind of dive into a little bit myself and check this out. What uh, what was your inspiration behind this? Oh, the dreaded inspiration. <laughs> yes. Well, um, I think a couple things maybe. I was, I had been wanting to write and thinking about a novel about a woman who's, although her divorce, which was painful as most divorces are, was 10 years in the past. And although she looked good, she looked like she was thriving in her life. She really was stuck in, in some ways emotionally. And I was wanting to write about that and about her relationship with her ex-husband and the ex-husband's second wife. Um, but I couldn't figure out a way to bring the second wife into kind of continued contact with the first wife, who was going to be my heroine, whose name turns out to be Liz in the book. And I get some of my best ideas in trains. I don't exactly know why. And I really must oh. take more trains. But I was on a train in England from Liverpool to uh, the Cotswolds and just looking out the window on a summer day and just enjoying myself. And I started thinking about this job I'd had as an editor at the Globe and Mail newspaper in Toronto, where I edited a page where um, people from all around Canada, from all across Canada, because it's a national newspaper, would send in personal essays. And I, or the editor of that page, would choose the best ones. It came out every day. So there were five pages a week. And often people would, not often, but sometimes people would send in essays and I would know them. There was, there was no indication on the page who was the editor and nobody much knew or cared who edited this page. But I would get these essays from people who thought they were sending it into some, you know, machine or anonymous editor or something. And it would be like, oh, my God, I knew you and da, da, da. So all mm -hmm. of a sudden, the two parts clicked together. And I thought right, I could write a novel set in a newspaper in which the second wife who's had an, has had an affair with um, Liz's husband when they were, when Liz was married to her um, husband and is now married to the husband. Have I made that clear? There, <laughs> there was a triangle and um, a woman in the, who's called Nicole in the novel had an affair uh, with Liz's husband when Liz was married to that husband. Now they're divorced and Nicole is married to Liz's ex-husband. So I thought, right, wife number two can send an essay to wife number one without any idea that she's sending it to her predecessor in the marriage. And they can, and Liz can start a kind of one-sided bogus editing thing about an essay that she never intends to publish. And that will start this whole comedy with something serious underneath it about forgiveness oh my goodness that that sounds fascinating and <laughs> and really intriguing it's got a little bit of a I don't know maybe like some dark humor to it it sounds like quite a lot I think yes <laughs> <laughs> now do you have do you find yourself identifying with any of the characters when you write or is it just kind of uh, just diving into something completely different outside yourself? Um, I think that Liz is 
sort of more organized and tidy and efficient than I am. But she and I share some tastes in reading and some, uh, there's, there's something of me in Liz, but she's, she's somehow more, more together. Uh, but at the same time, she's also more transgressive and willing to do things that I never would have done. Uh, she's having an affair with the publisher of the newspaper. Um, and I, I have to assure all my old colleagues at the Globe and Mail, no, I never had an affair with the publisher. <laughs> think about that. <laughs> and I'm telling the truth. But I know that I'm going to go down now in posterity as, did you know that Catherine had an affair with me, with our, with our publisher at the time? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, I think finally after my second novel came out, my family is finally starting to understand the process that, no, this is, my characters are not who I want to be, or they're not dark thoughts that I have that I want to do. <laughs> Nothing like that. This is just me telling a story. The characters are not me. This character is not you. This is something completely different. The characters are telling me the story. Right. It's nothing else. <laughs> that is so, it's so hard for families to understand that. And um, yeah, I, I've modeled, Liz has one son, a college age boy named Peter. And I, and he, and his, especially Peter to his mother, but the two of them have a kind of rough, in some ways, conversational style with each other. And I realized, I don't know when, midway through the writing or something, oh, I have modeled Peter on the way my younger daughter talks to me, um, which sometimes kind of startles people when they, when they hear us together. And it's always full of affection, but it's, as I say, kind of could sound harsh if you don't know the family style. So um, I'm not sure. I'm not <laughs> sure if anyone in the family will notice that. <laughs> Now, you also have a, a pretty wealthy collection of nonfiction books that you had worked on prior to your fiction. Uh, two of them, I, I guess I should say, really caught my attention that I'm going to have to uh, to check out. Uh, one of them is The Dirt on Clean, An Unsanitized History. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Well, it's about... Um... It's about what it says. It's about 28 centuries, starting with Homer in the 8th century BC, who wrote the Odyssey and the Iliad, and about the ways we have believed that we were cleaning ourselves and making ourselves clean, clean enough, which have varied unbelievably over those centuries um, to the, you know, from Louis XIV, the King of France, who lived a very long and quite athletic life. Uh, in the 17th century and boasted that he'd only had two baths in his entire life to today when we're washing ourselves way too much um, to be healthy and, you know, doing harm to our skin and the environment and don't get me started on our overwashing today. So it was, <laughs> the, the research was fascinating and, um, and often very funny and often very crazy when you just realize how, how susceptible um, and, um, just gullible we human beings are, including, you know, doctors and what passed for doctors and scientists in those early centuries. It was quite amazing, the research. Oh, my goodness. I bet. I mean, speaking of, of Dickens, um, <clears throat> we've been on a kick here recently watching some of the older. Um, oh, my goodness. I'm forgetting 
her name like Pride and Prejudice. Oh yeah, Jane Austen. Yes, Jane Austen. Some of her movies, and you know, you see the like, well, we need to get the leeches, or we we need to bleed someone for a while to get them <laughs> over this, over this head cold, and and just some of the practices, and like, oh my goodness. But as far as cleaning goes, um, you never appreciate your own shower as much as when you go camping, which <laughs> I just came back from. So, oh, it was so nice to come home to my own shower once again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that but that's interesting. Now, how how did you go about researching some of that with the dirt on clean? Well, that was a really hard research project, and I love to do research, but I realized that when you're when you're doing something that you don't do every day, you don't write in your diary or your journal or in a letter today, you know, for the 10,000th day in a row, I got up, I took a shower, I dried myself, I applied deodorant, yada, yada, yada. That's not really interesting. And also, um, when you don't do something, you don't say today for the 10,000th day in a row, I did not wash myself. So it was hard. And I relied a lot on travel diaries because people, for instance, people in Europe would go to the Middle East and see a way cleaner culture um, where it was, you know, in their religion that they had to be clean before they prayed and they had to be clean after such and such an activity and whatever. So they would write that down because it was unusual or people write down things when things are changing. So a woman in 18th century Philadelphia um, when people just began to get the idea that water was not scary and that you should maybe get in water every once in a while. Her husband installed an outdoor shower, very primitive in the back garden, um, where you just, you know, moved a sort of tray at the top of the shower and water came down on you. And she, this woman whose name was Mrs. Drinker, Elizabeth Drinker, wrote in her diary, I think, um, today you know, for the first time in 28 years, I was wet all over at once for the first time in 28 years, because she'd, with much fear, she'd gotten into this shower. So, uh, so the research was a challenge. Um, I'd written an earlier book about mourning, what the various things that people do when someone dies. And that was, the research was easy, because death and mourning were such incredibly central parts of human life that everybody wrote about them and described how they'd laid out their mother and described how they'd washed their father's body and et cetera. So there was an unbelievable amount of material there. Yeah, that was, and that was another book that caught my attention, The Mourner's Dance, uh, What We Do When People Die. And that that just seems fascinating. Um, mm -hmm. Where was. where did you, what, what made you want to write this? Well, my younger daughter, the one who lives in Vancouver, she was in her second year of medical school and engaged to be married. And her fiance was killed in a car accident outside mm. Seattle. And she hates me to say this, but, um, but she won't be listening. I don't think uh, she, I, I used to say she's, you know, I have one daughter who reads and constantly and one daughter who doesn't. And Hannah was the doesn't one. And uh, so she was not interested in our history or, in lots of things. So she knew nothing about traditional mourning practices in the past. And yet in the months after Scott, her fiance died, I saw her re sort of reinventing the wheel and 
making up. So she thought genuinely practices that I knew to be just traditional ways that people have marked to death. Like she wore a piece of Scott's clothing every day. She marked out Sunday afternoon as a time when her friends could come over and look through her photograph album of Scott. She had a forecast of time in the future that at a certain point she would change her engagement ring to her right hand, but not until after they would have gotten married. And, and so I just began thinking, wow, is there something instinctual about these things that mourners in so many different countries that had never heard of some of the other countries did? And that's how that one got started. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I, I'm not sure what to say, but that's just I, I feel sad for your daughter, but the book sounds fascinating. Uh, <clears throat> now, um, did she read this? She's never read it. And, and every when it first came out, I think it's about 20 years old now, I get my dates of my books mixed up. But in the beginning, every couple of years, her older sister, the reading sister, would say to Hannah, you've got to read mom's book. And Hannah would say, and I think that this is completely correct. And okay, Hannah would say, I lived through it. That was enough. She, she does not want to return to that very, very sorrowful time. And I respect that totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. What was one of the most fascinating points that you discovered uh, as far as how people uh, mourn? Was the one that stands up to you? Yeah, there were so, so, so many. But I guess one of the big ones was the very different expectations that just about every society placed on women as opposed to men. Mm. Uh, so that uh, a Victorian widow, for example, she would be in, she would be like shrouded in black, veil, um, umbrella, huge dress, nothing could shine on her body. For And this would be gradually, after about a year and a half, she could move into dark gray and then medium gray and then lighter gray and then purple and then lavender. And it was just like a huge three-month, three-year, sorry, incarceration in these mourning colors. Whereas her, the widower, um, a, a Victorian man whose wife had died, would it, what he wore was indistinguishable from what men wore anyway, like a black suit. Mm. Uh, and he could go out, a, a woman could not go to a concert, much I don't even talk about a party for, you know, much more than a year after her husband died. But the man who was understood to be, especially if there were children, that man needed a wife and he needed to replace the woman who died. So he was in the social world within a couple of months. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. One of them that's always interested me uh, was the practice in New Orleans, how they uh, celebrate with a parade and celebrate oh, the life yeah. that was. And we were right. in, New, we were in New Orleans a year ago, right before the pandemic, we went on our first cruise and we had a day to spend just kind of going downtown, be on Bourbon Street. And there was a uh, parade, the funeral parade that went by while we were there. And that was my wife's first experience getting to see that. So, well, now what are you, uh, what are you working on now? Well, <laughs> the pandemic kind of speeded up something and I haven't decided yet whether that was a good idea or not, but 
normally, because I've already told you I love research, and I was kind of frustrated with her turn in that I didn't need to do very much research around, I don't know, for years, I've been fascinated by the job of a museum curator, somebody who puts together exhibits in museums, and especially my this imaginary person who had this ideal job was a fashion curator. So she would put together things in the history of clothing. And I kept saying to various of my novelist friends, you can't really start a book because you're interested in someone's job, can you? And they all said, of course you can. And, you know, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. So before, well, I guess we were in the, right. I guess we were in the pandemic and all of a sudden I had another one of those minutes, such as the one I had on the train. Um, where I thought, right, my heroine is um, organizing a big exhibition about Dior's first collection in 1947, which changed the way women dressed, and also looked back into the German occupation of France, which had just about ended, and all these things, um, including a Jewish, uh, she's in denial, the heroine, that her father was Jewish, but she has to come to accept that in the course of the book. Anyways, something that I would call a book kind of clicked into my head. And I thought, oh, here we are in a pandemic and everything is locked down, but I can still get books from the University of Toronto Library, um, what's called curbside pickup. You couldn't go in the library, but you could read the card catalog. And mm -hmm. see, I still call it the card catalog. That shows how old <laughs> I remember it very well. <laughs> Online catalog. So I did that for a couple of months because I had to, I wanted to learn way more about Dior, about the French occupation, about post-war France, about the politics and the way a modern museum operates. And in non-pandemic times, I would have happily read for a year in those subjects. And I did start out trying, but it was so frustrating because what the way I like to do research is I like to go into a library, sit on the floor and go through about 20 books. You know, no, that one's not gonna help me. Yes, this is exactly what I want. No, that's not gonna be useful, etc. And so I, but with curbside pickup, you can't do that. So I ended up, and I don't drive. So I ended up taking home like 20 books four of which would turn out to be good. And after a certain point, I just thought, I'm just going to start writing and I don't know what's going to happen. So I do have like more than half of a first draft done. And now I'm in the dreaded soggy middle where I don't know how to go forward or if it's been a complete waste of time or whatever. But now I'm a bit busy, you know, just doing a bunch of things such as this one, which is delightful about her turn. So that's good because it will give me a, a month or so away from the new novel. <laughs> <laughs> when when you get your ideas, is it like just, just a general idea or is it like the ending or how it begins? Anything like that? Uh, it's usually how it begins. Mm -hmm. And I usually have a sense of what, where I, how I want it to end, but I have no clue how to get there. Mm. And with her turn, I got my heroine into at least two very big messes. And I remember going around for some weeks, if not months, in the writing of this thinking, how the heck am I going to get her out of that mess that I put her in? So that's, yeah, I know the beginning and I know the end. It's just the middle, how to get to the end that I have trouble with. <laughs> um, I'm kind of the same way. I Sometimes I get the beginning 
usually I know the ending. Like I get this picture in my head of a big finale because I, I write thrillers. And so I got this big finale in my head and sometimes this crazy beginning, but yeah, it's like, well, how did they get from here to there and figuring that part out. And sometimes I just start going and see if it comes to me. And other times like, like yourself, I've got to work on something else and get some time away from it. And then all of a sudden it's, I'll be in the shower driving to work and oh I got it I know what it is right yeah it's hang great. on to that all day yeah <laughs> <laughs> well uh Catherine where can people find and follow you uh oh this is a good question but um I guess through my website which is um pretty simple it's ashenberg.com Okay. Yep. And I've got that pulled up here. I'll make sure and add that link to the, uh, in the show notes. So it'll be there. Right. And, um, and I am on Facebook also. Okay. Yeah. Great. And and I'll put that on there and I'll, I'll add some links from, uh, from the Harper Collins as well. And, uh, we'll get all these links added to that in the show notes, everyone, so that you know, to just click down below at the, uh, at the end of this, stay tuned. You want to hear Catherine's reading of her turn because it sounds fascinating and uh, I can't wait to hear it myself. Meanwhile, Catherine, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me on the show. This has been delightful. Well, thank you very much. And I didn't realize that you were an author too, and I'm going to look up your books and uh, <laughs> reading them. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And well, thank uh, you for your interest. It's been fun talking. It has been fun. Yes. And I I can't wait to uh, check out some of these books and uh, explore them for myself. All right, everyone, time for me to step aside with a cup of coffee and uh, enjoy this wonderful reading from our guest today, Catherine Ashenberg, reading from Her Turn. Well, I'm going to read something that's fairly close to the beginning of the book. Um, As I mentioned in the interview, my heroine, Liz, is a newspaper editor in Washington, DC, and she edits this column of personal essays that people send in from all across the states. And the column is called My Turn. Um, People you're gonna hear about in this excerpt are Sydney, the ex-husband of my heroine, Liz, Nicole, the woman who had an affair with Liz's husband when he was Liz's husband, he's now Nicole's husband. Um, And Liz and Sydney have a college-age son named Peter. So it begins with Liz in her office at the newspaper, and she's been reading submissions. After she had read and dismissed about 20 with her usual dispatch, she came to one simply titled, Submission for My Turn. What made her head break out into a sweat and her heart begin thudding was the name of the sender. It came from Nicole Zabo in Seattle. Even in the instant commotion roused by that name, out of blind habit, Liz skimmed the start of the essay, something about preparations for Christmas. Nicole Zabo was the woman with whom Liz's ex-husband, Sidney, had had a secret affair during the last few years he was married to Liz. Nicole was now married to Sidney, and she had no idea she was submitting an essay to her husband's ex-wife. That was one of the strange things about Liz's job. Her name did not appear on the page and outside the paper and her circle of friends, no one knew or much cared who edited my turn. Often the submissions were full of intimate detail, either because the writers thought incorrectly that they could appear with a pseudonym 
or because they didn't have the writerly skill to control their revelations. Very occasionally, especially if they were from Seattle, where Liz had been married and lived for 18 years, she knew the writer. But nothing this close to home had ever happened before. Nicole was here in her inbox. At first, Liz felt invaded, although she told herself that Nicole was the one who was exposed, not her. She wanted a towel to dry her sweaty head and a drink. She wondered if any of the old timers still kept a bottle in their bottom drawer. She sent Nicole's offering flying into her no file and she carried on with her submissions. She paid attention more or less and did not look at the no file. It said very clearly on the My Turn page on the paper's website that only successful essays would be acknowledged. So there was absolutely no need for editor at myturn.com to respond to Nicole Zabo. At nine o'clock that evening in her apartment, Liz poured herself a mug of chamomile tea and moved to the living room. Opening her tablet, she asked herself why she hadn't just erased Nicole's submission instead of sending it to no. Force of habit? Her conscience insisting that she had to at least read the thing? She circled the piece with her cursor. Perhaps it contained something shamefully personal, even secret. Nonsense, her sensible self said. This is an essay Nicole is willing to have the country read. It's hardly a private document. Yes, her softer side said, but Nicole had no idea that I was going to have some kind of privileged access to it. Oh, get over yourself and your privileged access, the hard-nosed Liz said. She knew it wasn't reasonable, but nice Liz did feel that reading the essay would give her some knowledge about Nicole that she didn't deserve. Not a fraction as much as she has about you and your marriage, cynical Liz countered. There was no denying that. Of all the times Liz had met Nicole during her clandestine affair with Sydney, one clawed its way into her memory now. Clawed was appropriate because it involved kittens. Peter's cat had six kittens, and they were looking for homes for them. One went to Liz's Italian teacher, two to a friend's daughter, and three were left when Sydney said casually one day, oh, I ran into Nicole Zabo in the butchers. She'd like to come and choose a kitten for her kids. They settled on Saturday morning when Sydney would be at Peter's baseball game. Thinking about that now, Liz felt a tiny surge. Coward she said to Sydney over the years and across the country, you didn't have the guts to be there while your wife and your lover stood over a litter of kittens. It had been a sunny summer morning and she had been in the kitchen ironing her clothes for the coming work week when Nicole arrived. She offered her coffee, but Nicole said no, she had to pick up her kids from swimming class so she would be quick. Liz continued ironing while Nicole crouched over the reeking tangle of kittens in the cardboard box by the kitchen door. She began talking to the kittens, which was the kind of thing she did. Liz and Sydney had met Nicole when she was an assistant at Peter's daycare, and probably kittens and young children were on the same continuum for her. Oddly, Liz had a very clear memory of one of the dresses she was ironing that day. Perhaps Nicole commented on it. They must have made some desultory conversation while she chose her kitten. It was a two-piece dress in pale blue and white striped cotton. 
the skirt straight and the shirt long sleeved and collarless. She remembered that the cotton was very soft. Somehow Liz equated the innocence and simplicity of that shirtwaist with her own unsuspicious hospitality. Sure, take my kitten. Oh, and while you're at it, take my husband. She could not remember what Nicole had worn, probably one of her vaguely folkloric outfits. They went well with her mop of light brown curls and the general air of very slight confusion that made people, especially men, want to help her. Nicole picked a kitten whose face had the shape and markings of a pansy. We will call her Pansy, she said. Liz gave her a shoebox in which to transport the kitten. Nicole thanked her and left. She and Sydney must have had a good laugh, or at least a guilty smile over their successful caper. The thought of that sunny kitchen scene still galled Liz. In the midst of the big betrayal, it was the little betrayals that rankled most. It still rankled on the rare occasions when she thought of it, but 10 years had passed. She had moved to DC, had a good job, even if the life expectancy of a daily newspaper grew smaller and smaller, excellent friends, and an agreeably changing cast of gentlemen callers, even if Peter scorned them. She went to yoga on Tuesday nights with her friend Freya, kept on with her Italian, reread Middlemarch every four years, enjoyed a rich and full life. Her friends, especially her married friends, thought that her life was much better single than coupled. Usually, she did not disagree. Now her chamomile tea was cold, and she moved it over on the coffee table with her foot. As usual, she had left something out of her summary of her fortunate life. Her affair with Seamus Donovan, the paper's married publisher. Instead of wondering whether Seamus was part of her good fortune or something more problematic, she decided that she would read Nicole's essay, just so that she could tell herself she had treated it as she would any submission. She took a sip of the cold tea. The essay was about the disproportionate work of Christmas in the life of a couple. The writer, that is the wife, that is Nicole, began thinking about Christmas at the end of November or the beginning of December, making lists of gifts, parties that needed to be attended or given, decorations, food, family dinners, and other compulsory traditions. None of this was fancy, but turning those lists into reality involved much toil on the wife's part. For the husband, Christmas planning started around noon on Christmas Eve. That's when this man, a prince of a guy but a mite disorganized, was suddenly seized with the need to go out and buy expensive presents for everyone on his list, if he had had a list. He went shopping without consulting his wife about the presents she had already bought and without remembering that she needed his help preparing their annual Christmas Eve dinner for his cousins. This was not conducive to warm holiday feelings on the part of the wife. This year, she was determined to avoid any unfestive sentiments. She had invited her husband out for dinner at their neighborhood bistro, and there they would plan Christmas together. They would draw up lists, assign tasks, and everything from their Christmas carol singing party to the chestnuts she was usually too exhausted to roast on the open fire would be prepared according to their fair and prearranged accord. Well, on the positive side, Liz always needed Christmas pieces. Nicole had submitted it well ahead of time, and Liz tried to edit a handful in advance 
so that she could have a few days off over the holidays while Peter was at home. It wasn't a subject that had been done to death, and in the hands of a better writer, the essay would have had a fighting chance. But Nicole wasn't a better writer. Too many passive-aggressive, impersonal sentences, too little color, and too few specific examples. Too much energy spent praising the husband for his generosity while she shied away from her resentment. But that wasn't Liz's problem, either as an editor or former wife. She had done her professional duty. Whoever had written this piece, it would not have made the cut. Hmm, sounds like Liz has some all-new soul-searching at hand. <laughs> hey, that was Katherine Ashenberg reading a sample chapter from her book, Her Turn. The book is available August 3rd. You can pre-order it right now by clicking that link in the show notes so you don't have to go searching for it. Likewise, you can also find Catherine's website and social media along with a link for HarperCollins as well as links for all of our podcast friends, sponsor, and partners alike. And hey, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out next week when I am back with Jeff Pollock and his debut novel, The First Second Coming. That's next week. <laughs> Take care, everybody. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network. Network.